Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think they're a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. But I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we're still in quarantine like everybody else, so we are just going to talk about fun things to do with film history and uh, how women are repressed and all of that kind of thing. Uh, I am, as always, Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. How are you this this fine whatever day we're in now? I have no idea anymore. There is no such thing as time. Time is a construct and it Which is means true. nothing. True. <laughs> I mean really when you Yeah, it's it's definitely <laughs> Einstein felt that <laughs> It is a construct. There yes. is no Welcome to the any... Relativity Podcast. <laughs> So how how are you doing? This we were off last week. So what have you been up to the past the past week or so? Um, what have I been up to? Watching more stuff, of course. Um, catching up on TV still, um, and watching some movies. And I, I I got to see my mom on Mother's Day last week. That was really, it was really good. Um, it had been about a month since I saw her because I went over there the week before Easter. And, um, but this time my brother and sister-in-law and nephew came to my nephew's 14. And so we all got together and had lunch and we stayed, she has this nice porch that's big and has like benches on it and stuff. And so we were able to stay safely away from each other while getting, getting to spend just the afternoon together. And it was so nice to just be with my family and laugh and talk. And it's just different when you're trying to do that on Skype or whatever, yeah. you know. So, yeah, it was good to see my fam. How about you? I have just been. I've been working. I've actually had a lot of work recently, which which is good. I'm not complaining. I'm complaining, but I'm not complaining. Like this is a good thing. Um, yeah. And then also just watching movies, making a lot of various forms of bread and baked goods because it gives us something to do. <laughs> If anyone follows, your house looks like the place to be for quarantine. I swear, between the <laughs> bread and the alcohol and <laughs> yeah. So I was telling Karen before we started recording that I I I somehow managed to buy a lot of alcohol within a very small space of time, <laughs> um, which provoked a little bit of concern from my roommate who does not drink. But I I was like, look, I'm not drinking all of it at once. I just have a variety to choose from. So that's the principle at work here um but yes so that's you gotta have options exactly no exactly and also it's summer so you know it's time to switch out some of the dark liquors for some of the lighter liquors so i needed tequila you know you gotta gotta like keep the keep stuff revolving my parents said that i've gone full full brooklyn but uh i'm not entirely (laughs) certain what that means (laughs) I don't know. I bought tequila and limoncellos, so apparently that's full Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, <laughs> but then also watching movies and yelling at men on the internet, like I always do. So that's been fun. Um, so this week we decided that, you know, last the, the past couple of weeks we've been talking about film theory. We talked about film criticism. We talked about feminist uh, criticism. Um, and so we wanted to sort of go back a little bit and uh, actually talk about some of the, the history of cinema and particularly right now the uh, beginnings of cinema. Where does cinema kind of come from originally and how did it develop and sort of the important um, early movements of cinema and the, some of the important early filmmakers. And so we have a lot of different things, different things to discuss. This is partially influenced, I think, by the fact that First of all, it is National Classic Cinema Day, apparently, which I was not aware of. Oh, look at uh, that. Look at us. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, oh, this is this is nice. So as as we are recording, this is National Classic Cinema Day. And of course, there's always been this long conversation about what are classics? Um, mm-hmm. I would say classics are pretty much anything before 1968. Um, but there's some disagreements to that. Back in film school, uh, uh, one of my professors defined it, actually talked about classical cinema and not really referring to films as classics, but referring to them as classical cinema. And what he meant by that was films made during, uh, within specifically Hollywood films, but films made during the classical period in Hollywood, which in, which would encompass uh, code films, pre-code films, um, and films made within the studio system. So that would run up to about the, the early 60s. Uh, which, with kind of the disintegration and eventual collapse of the studio system. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for myself, because when I, when I talk, oh, that movie's classic, like, to me, it's something that's kind of, this is actually what led us into deciding to talk about this stuff today, was, for me, that's stuff that leads into, like, this is the, this is the essentials. These are the movies yeah. that I feel like are movies that people need to see. And for me, some of those are even in the 80s. So I think if you break it down by the classical period, that actually makes a lot of sense because that's a completely different way of looking at uh, different types of films. Yeah, it's it's a more precise historical designation, I guess, mm-hmm. so that there stops being this, there's so much debate about, is this a classic, is it not? Is it a classic just because it was made in 1938? Uh, even though it's not a very well-known film or it's even a bad film, right? Or, you know, so so Casablanca is a classic, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, some of the Gene Autry movies, which are not particularly high quality, et cetera, might not, <laughs> you you would still, would you call them classics, right? So that that's where the, deba- the debate gets going. So saying classical is more like a historical designation and, and is a little bit more precise, but that doesn't seem to be a thing that we do in... Um, in the more public popular popular mindset uh (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of things we don't do in the popular public mindset (laughs) yeah i know i know that people like kind of reject some of the academic designations and i understand why and i there there are issues and one of the things we're going to talk about today is actually the issues with canon and the issues with uh some of the the way that academe has designated the importance of certain films versus the unimportance of other films um but sometimes academe also gets it right and it, it might it is actually better if we are at least are aware of these terms and are able to kind of apply them and to talk about film in a more nuanced also less judgmental way you know is this classic is it not classic 
It's like, well, my, what I define as classic might be different from what you define as classic, but if we're talking about classical, they were talking about a particular period of film. Uh, so, in, in reference to this, in reference to talking about classical cinema and talking about the essentials, uh, we wanted to give kind of a quick rundown of the history of cinema and the history of early cinema and, and where cinema sort of developed from. Now, of course, the second thing you begin, like, well, where did cinema begin? Well, <laughs> we don't know. Um, late part of the 19th century, so late 19th century is where you actually begin to get, uh, quote, moving pictures. Now, you can go back even farther than that and talk about, um, you know, shadow plays. You talk about the projection of images with magic lanterns, which became popular in uh, the late 19th century. But really, when you begin to get moving photographic images is around the time of the production of the Lumiere Brothers short films uh, in, around 1895. So you're talking very late 19th century. Um, and of course, you have what, what very quickly happens in, uh, in the history of early cinema is you get, a, you get a breakdown. So you've got the Lumiere Brothers who are essentially recording activities, right? With a static camera, and part of this was because of the uh, the limitations of the technology of the period. You did not have really uh, recording apparatus uh, or anything like that to, to record sound. Although, I'm going to talk, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, sound, there, there was a use of sound fairly early in silent cinema. Um, very few silent films are actually 100% silent. Uh, and there were different ways that people used sound and uh, different ways to, to produce sound. Just like most black and white films were not necessarily completely black and white. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and even when we talk about black and white, what are we actually talking about? There were a lot of tinting, there was a lot of, um, uh, there were a lot of use of filters, things like that. So very rarely, you know, I, I would always caution people to, when, when people begin talking about black and white films or silent films, so always to actually look into the reality of those films because there was a lot of experimentation going on. There's a lot of sort of attempts to, to do different things with film and to see what, you know, see what film could do. Uh, and that's part of the, um, the contrast between the things that the Lumiere brothers produced and then some of the films that uh, Georges Méliès produced and, and other filmmakers in that the, the Lumiere brothers were primarily documentary, realistic cinema. That, that's how we would refer to them. So they were recordings of things like a train arriving at the station, a, a child taking its first steps, um, you know, people walking in a park, things like that. So this is very, this, this almost photographic preservation of very short snippets of life. And some of it was just about experimentation about okay, we can actually show this now. We can show, rather than just a photograph of a child, we can show a child walking, and that's pretty spectacular. We can show a train arriving versus just a photograph of a train. Uh, and that's surprising when you think about it in that, in that time period where people are not particularly used to seeing this. Um, suddenly you're able to see these, these moving images. And, uh, but what very quickly happened uh, with the Lumiere brothers, and then with um, uh, Georges Méliès. Georges Méliès was a, uh, a onstage magician for a very long time, and when he initially saw the, uh, the demonstrations of the cinematograph uh, that the Lumiere brothers had been using, he 
pretty immediately saw the the opportunity for uh, for the for the way that film could actually be used. So he began producing films that were trick films, trick photography. And I mean, most of us have seen the images from uh, from A Trip to the Moon, mm-hmm. and where you've got a, you actually have a rocket ship being launched into the moon, and the moon is this person's face, and it's it's very creepy actually. <laughs> um, but I love so, that movie. It's a it's actually a wonderful film, and and I think the one of the things the Lumiere brothers' films are sort of interesting to look at because they're they're you know very important in the context of film history. But Melies' films really are brilliant films, and they're very short, you know. But it's amazing what he was able to do with very primitive cinematic technology. You know, the use of overlapping frames and overlapping plates, the use of um, people basically transforming into other characters. Uh, the fact that he like took a Jules Verne story and turned it into a film. So this is like, you know, very often been referred to as the first science fiction film. Uh, but so Millier was kind of playing with what cinema could do beyond simply documenting and showing this is how, uh, you know, this is how, this is what life looks like. Because of course, this isn't what life looks like. It wasn't in uh, living color, right? In the in the sense that there were there was color there was sometimes color utilized within films, but um, none of the Lumiere brothers' films showed an act, you know, actual people with actual skin tones, etc. Um, it was in very kind of primitive black and white or, or um, filtered images, and so he, Lumiere or not Lumiere, uh, Melier kind of saw the direction that film could go. And in, in a certain sense, there's always been that kind of conflict uh, within film, the, the Lumiere-Melier conflict of, is film meant to be sort of a documentary apparatus, a way of showing reality or coming close to showing reality? Or is it is it trying to tell a story, trying to tell um, an unrealistic story, a story that could never actually happen. You know, people can't really be beheaded and survive, but you see it on screen. And is that reality? You know, this is no longer photography as a documentation of, of real people, but a documentation of what people are capable of in art. And so you've always got that, that conflict. Uh, And I think that that conflict really runs through all the way through to today about what we believe and what we don't believe, what film is able to show us and what film isn't able to show us and where we kind of draw the line. It's funny last night, um, and we'll talk more about this later, but I was watching a documentary about Alice Guy Blachet called Be Natural. And um, we'll talk more specifically about her, but she worked with the Lumieres and that's kind of where she got her start and, and where film got its start but um there's a a section of the the documentary where they're talking about these old films and these footage i mean i remember seeing the horse and some other things like in sixth grade you know yeah and uh the train arriving at the station and some of those but um but they're doing this side-by-side comparison and they're showing these very early films that are just capturing um, like you're talking about just like snapshots of life basically, but in moving images and they were doing that side by side with YouTube videos 
And it was talking about how basically YouTube and people just having access to whatever camera is available to them and being able to just put it out on YouTube is very reminiscent of the very earliest days of film because Mm -hmm. people are just trying everything and just seeing what they can do and experimenting. And they don't even realize that they're doing the exact same things that people were doing 150 years ago. And it's really funny. And it was just like watching that was just, wow, people don't change. (laughs) (laughs) They don't. No, it's true. It's true. And and yeah, it's a really good point to like a lot of the, the TikTok videos or back in the day, Vines, YouTube videos, all of those are very reminiscent of those kind of short snippet films Mm -hmm. uh, that we have from the really early stages of cinema. And some of it is just experimentation. It's playing with it, seeing what can you do? What can you, um, what can you accomplish using comparatively primitive technology and definitely limited technology? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. In in order to create, you know, something that's funny, something that's interesting, you know, there's also a lot of talk, um, about the way that, you know, just regular people use film. So we do things like, you know, we'll, we'll pick up our phone and we'll record the, the skyline uh, because it's really pretty at night. Or we'll, like, record one of our friends saying something because it's funny. Uh, we'll record, you know, obviously our children taking their first steps, um, playing with our pets, all of those sorts Being of things. Being at a concert and, like, watching the crowd jump up and down. That was actually one of the ones they showed was music and the crowd response and it was like a video a youtube video of a concert and then next to this film that probably alice gee had made that was just people at a dance hall listening to music and jumping around yeah exactly i mean and those so we're I, I think that's a really good point that we're um we're essentially making the same kinds of films and that that that's basically what these early kind of innovators were doing uh, they were trying to see what they could do and they were trying to see what cinema was capable of. And then as the technology changed and as it improved and as people kept on playing with it and seeing like, well, if I can, you know, so uh, there are many early examples of animation. Um, how can we move uh, drawn images or shadow images and things like that? And how can we put, how can we record that? And have really, again, so, you know, going back to Melier, uh, these impossible images, right? So uh, dinosaurs, line drawings of dinosaurs walking. Well, you know, obviously dinosaurs don't exist anymore. So the only way that we're able to uh, kind of create some of those ideas visually is via these little moving images. Um, so it's it's very, I think it's really useful to go back actually and to watch some of these very short films. Uh, one of the things that begins to develop is this kind of, again, this argument between the documentary cinema and the cinema of spectacle. And cinema of spectacle is sort of like what Méliès was doing, which was essentially recording magic tricks for a while. And then as uh, as things changed, he began trying to make different kinds of films. He made things like Trip to the Moon, uh, where it was beyond just, you know, performing a magic trick in, in front of a camera and actually... Uh, playing with the camera more and playing with costuming and what can I represent that is fantastical. Uh, But there were also a a lot of early cinema also comprised things like showing short snippets of circus performances, 
Um, there is a very bizarre video that I linked to yesterday on, on Twitter um, because the, there was a question about a GIF that I used um, in, in, in asking for questions. And it was this very bizarre image of this woman and like a gigantic pig pers- person in a pig outfit dancing. And it's literally a, a videotaping of a vaudeville or not a videotaping, a filming of a vaudeville act called The Dancing Pig. And it's weird. It's very weird. But that was the kind of thing that people were recording and that people were producing because it was all cinema was a way of getting that those stage shows and those stage images to a a wider population. Um, And so and to just sort of impress people and make people go, ooh, ah, and uh, and, you know, give them a, a source of entertainment. So that, and that's, I think, where that Lumiere-Millier conflict comes in that we still see today of what is documentary um, and just sort of a a basic recording and what is fantastic, what is spectacular. So what's realistic, what's unrealistic, you know, and and how do we define those two terms? Because obviously all of this is is still about what the filmmaker is choosing to record and is choosing to show and where they're choosing to place the camera. So, uh, all right, so we've got the conflict between between Lumiere and the Lumiere brothers and, and Melier, and then of course you get uh, people like Thomas Edison who are coming in and beginning to produce small films, and there's some argument about what Edison actually invented versus what he patented, and I'm not gonna get into that <laughs> entire conversation, because frankly, I just don't care. Edison was very influential and, uh, and very important in the development of cinema, particularly in the development of American cinema, but he is not as innovative himself as uh, as I think he would have liked to think, or as history is kind of recorded, mostly because he just patented things. Um, but yeah, the... he. Oh, sorry. No, go on. Oh, I was just gonna say on Edison. Yeah, he was very good at hiring smart people, <laughs> and then yes, claiming their work. <laughs> Yes, yes, yeah. pretty much. Uh, but so one of the one of the earliest sort of uh, Western films and one of the earliest examples of what we have come to know as narrative cinema um, is, of course, The Great Train Robbery from 1903. Uh, it is a short Western that um, actually makes use of things like on-location filming and camera movement and camera angles and, of of course, the very famous shot that has been referenced numerous times, uh, which actually has almost nothing to do with the film. Like, it isn't actually a part of the film itself. It's just sort of the end tag to it of uh, the man in Western garb turning to the camera and firing directly into the camera, firing a gun directly into the camera, which is famous. I mean, and this has been used, Scorsese has used it. Uh, Mm -hmm. This has been shown across the board. So this is an incredibly influential film and it was directed by Edwin S. Porter. And of course you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on many different places. but it's it's one of the the most famous film, and I always hesitate to say it's one of the first because there's usually something that came before it. Um, but it's one of the earliest films that that uses things like composite editing and uh, camera movement, cross cutting, to to create this this imp- this impression of continuity and continuity narrative intention. Uh, which is eventually developed over the course of, of a number of films um, into what we now really understand as narrative cinema. 
and uh, and you can see the the beginnings of that in the Great Train Robbery. This is also a fictionalized narrative, so you're talking about fiction film. You're talking about fictional narrative film um, that isn't just telling the story of a train arriving at the station, uh, and and it's also based on a play. So it's it's an early um, uh, it's an early adaptation of uh, of another art form into cinema. So then you you begin to get into these these issues of things like the early vaudeville acts that are just being sort of recorded and then reproduced, and then you get into something like the Great Train Robbery, which is much much closer to being um, uh, an adaptation of a film or of a of an original play. So you begin to get into these adaptation issues. And that's when film begins to, I think, draw closer to stuff to things like literature and um, uh, and theater, in that it is, uh, it's, it's using it's using previous, previous forms of art to tell to tell a different story in a way that only cinema can obviously in a, in a a, a player in a theater in a book you can't take people to a, an actual train you have to find a way to reproduce it on stage great train robbery is actually taking you to the location and showing you something that really only cinema is capable of um and so that's it's kind of an interesting turning point in in movie making when you begin to get into location shooting and this kind of development of cinema very, very early as its own independent art form that isn't simply recording what can be seen, but actually trying to show something new. Um, did you have any thoughts about that, uh, Karen? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that as soon as you figure out that you have this new way of telling stories, that you would tell stories. I mean, we've been, as human beings, we've been making up stories since the beginning of our time. And... Fiction has just always been part of, of culture, every culture. And it's the way that we pass down lessons and morals and values and things. And so it makes sense to me that once they figured out how to put that onto film and project it on a screen, that it would be, it would follow very soon after that that would be another way to start um, telling a new way to start telling those stories. And it's, um, it's funny. It was another thing. I'm going to reference this documentary a lot, but um, another thing I was I was I cracked up at um, watching the Alice Guy documentary last night was when the, in the very very earliest days, and they of course were not they didn't have and they weren't enforcing copyright laws, <laughs> and mm. <laughs> um, as we know them now, and so it was just really funny because they would have this problem where people were just outright stealing from each other all over town and so you'd have some actors that would do something for Alice and then they'd run across the street the next day and be like hey so we just did this movie and this is how it went and so then this other group would (laughs) make the exact same movie and that was just happening all over the place and and um no one was immune to it, but it's just, it's funny because that's just human nature, I think, to just copy and steal everything from each other and try to get credit for it. But, yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, those earliest days of film, really, the industry looks today the way it does in part because of what was happening as it was being developed. Yeah, and, and so then you begin to get into, uh, you know, one of the issues of, of credit uh of most films most films most like really and we're talking about very early cinema 
most films do not have director credits or actor credits or um, cast credits or anything like that. There was, so we don't, we're very used to seeing these cast lists and, you know, here's who directed it, here's who filmed it, here's who wrote it, you know, all of those things. These films were pretty much just produced under, um, like, the Edison Company or uh, or mm-hmm. Alice Guiblache's company. Yeah. Um, in, um, uh, in 1912, formed Select Studios, right? And she was, she's kind of credited as being supposedly one of the, um, from 1906 to 1912, as supposedly being one of the only film- female filmmakers in the world. I think that that's probably false, uh, but, you know, we kind of, <laughs> yeah. we sort of go with that. She's definitely the best known um, of of the filmmaker, of uh, female filmmakers, and she tends to kind of be ignored in favor of people like Edwin S. Porter, in favor of people like, um, later on, uh, uh, D.W. Griffith and uh, Cecil B. DeMille, et cetera, all of those guys. Uh, but she was an incredibly important figure in early cinema and um and has rec- very recently as you've been talking about Karen has very recently gotten kind of begun to get her due yeah um it's interesting because I mean everyone gives the great train robbery the um designation of being like the first cinema the first feature narrative um but really watching this documentary most people now they think it was alice Guy in 1899 mm-hmm. with um la fée aux choux which is the cabbage fairy which interesting enough was a remake of a very short snippet film from a couple years earlier so basically the first feature film was a remake <laughs> go figure <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> but uh but it was interesting because they actually for this documentary which is called Be Natural, The Untold Story of Alice Guy Blaché. Um, I had to rent it. It's not available to stream for free anywhere, but it was like three bucks on Voodoo. Um, totally worth it. But uh, it was interesting because they actually interviewed tons of people from the industry. They talked to directors like, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think right now who all was in it. Ava DuVernay. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um Oh my gosh, I should just look at a list because <laughs> it was a ton of people. Um, um, Peter, Pete Bogdanovich, um, mm-hmm. just like so many people. And one of the very first questions they ask everybody is, what do you know about Alice Guy Blaché? And every one of them is just like, I'd never heard of her. I'd never heard of her. No idea who that was. Uh, Gail Ann Hurd, who's a producer and writer, she's best known for The Walking Dead. She was like, oh, yeah, I've heard of her. <laughs> and then other people are like, yeah, no, never. Um, and she starts, so Gail starts talking about, like, a little bit of how she was familiar with her work. But even that wasn't that long ago. And, like, Bogdanovich is all, yeah, I've read so many books about Hollywood. I've written so many books about Hollywood. I have never come across her name. And it just was infuriating. <laughs> this is where I just started to get so mad. But all these guys were mad too, because they're just like, it's ridiculous that someone was that influential in the, in the foundation of film. And she's been completely erased from history and has been, her spot has been taken away. Mm-hmm. And it's just in the last few years that, we've really started to talk about her and started to talk about her work. And this documentary is actually great because it even gets into 
some of why it was so hard to know anything about her, but they were able to uncover these interviews that she did in 1964, which is just a couple years before she died. And it was her just talking about the industry that she helped create and her place in it and even a little bit of how she felt about being pushed aside. And it was just really cool to hear her talking about why women need to have a place in film and why women are so Mm -hmm. fundamentally important to film. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it's fascinating. If you have not seen it, I highly, highly recommend watching it. Um, I learned a lot of things. <laughs> well, and and thankfully, you know, we do have to say that uh, a lot of her films are now fairly widely available in very good prints uh, because Kino has been doing the Pioneers yeah. uh, Women Filmmakers collections, and um, and so now you can actually watch a lot of her her early work, and you and you see the influence, you see um, how influential she was on other f- male filmmakers of the period, many of whom we have we know better, right? Uh, and, but one of the interesting things is that in terms of talking about, you know, who she was and how important she was, this was not a name that came up. You know, I, I did two years of graduate film work. This wasn't, she wasn't a name that came up in talking about the early days of cinema. You know, we talked about D.W. Griffith. We talked about, um, Thomas Edison. We talked about Edwin S. Porter. Uh, we talked about... Cecil B. DeMille. We talked about all of those kind of early Hollywood filmmakers and early um, international filmmakers as well, European filmmakers, etc. We didn't talk about Alice Guy Blachet. Um, another person that we didn't talk about, and she in some ways is, is a, bit, a little bit closer to being a contemporary of um, people like Griffith, is Lois Weber. Yeah. Who, who, you know, one of my, my friend Nanina very loves saying this, but in 1916, she was the highest paid director. Period. Mm-hmm. Highest paid director in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and we'll get to Frances Marion in a minute, but she was yeah. the highest paid writer. <laughs> yeah, and and so, but, you, so, you know, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of Lois Weber, uh, and, and also, and Blachek sort of before her, um, these were incredibly influential women. These were women that were producing films yeah. that were popular films, right? These, mm-hmm. so you know, you don't get uh, you don't get to the top of your game at Universal by producing films that no one watches. People were watching these films. People were going to see these movies, and and specifically, you know, they they were getting their names on the credits at this point, right? This was something that they were important figures. And yet nobody talked about them. And, no, and you know, we definitely know who D.W. Griffith is. You know, when you say Lo- Lois Weber, like, well, who the hell is Lois Weber? You know, was, a couple of years ago, I didn't know who Lois Weber was. So I, I think that it's very good that now we actually are having this conversation. But it's also very sad because you're talking about these people that did influence Hollywood and did influence the, develop- the development of cinema across the board and attempted new techniques and told different kinds of stories and told some very interesting stories. And yet we don't know their names. They're not being given credit. Um, they're not being given historical credit. And we're still talking about these comparatively terrible people. I mean, D.W. Griffith was a fucking racist. You know, one of oh, his yeah. films was responsible for the reinvigoration of the KKK, for God's sake. Um, and yet we talk Meanwhile, about... 
Sorry. Meanwhile, Alice Guy Blanchet produces, directs the very first film with an all African American cast. Now, that movie has some problems in our current <laughs> understanding of the world. However, a little bit. <laughs> oh, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's definitely not. The movie itself is, you know, it's problems. But she, she, and the reason she did that was because she had white actors who refused to work with these black actors. And so she's just like, okay. And she could have just had white people in blackface, but she's like, no, fine. I'll just recast these white actors as, you know, with black actors instead. And so she had this film that was all an entirely black cast. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And that was like 1909 or something. Yeah, it, it is really interesting, and I think that I think that it's that you know again it's important to note those things and to a lot of people when when they talk about D.W. Griffith and of course for anyone who doesn't know the the movie that we're discussed that we're talking about here is Birth of a Nation, um, yeah, which is a very influential film and and I think that that's that's <laughs> always one of the issues that you have to grapple with when you're talking about people like Griffith um, is that it is an influential film you know even though it it is terrible. Uh, in terms of what it depicts and its extreme racism, et cetera, it also influenced a lot of subsequent films. Um, And so that's something that you always have to to grapple with in dealing with that. But it is also good to note that people like Alice Guy-Blachet were making movies that even even if, you know, some of the things that we look at now and we go like, I'm not 100% comfortable with that, right? And you shouldn't be. Um, right. But it was a very different view of African Americans. Um, it was a very different view than than what we see, obviously, in something like Birth of a Nation. Uh, yeah. You know, we we've talked a little bit. Um, we talked a little bit about this uh, a month ago or so uh, about the early black filmmakers, um, people like uh, Os- uh, Oscar Micheaux, who made like I mean, Oscar Micheaux made a film called Within Our Gates, which is in its own way kind of a response to Birth of a Nation. It's a response to D.W. Griffith, and saying like you know, no, this is the reality of lynching in. Um, in the the early part of the 20th century this is the reality of african-american life and in some ways it's a polemic and that's fine but it's it's an interesting kind of counterpoint and the, the problem is we talk a lot about the influence of griffith but we don't talk a lot about the influence of michelle or about the complexity of racial relationships um, and gender relationships in this early period of cinema, we very much focus on, well, this is this is a terrible film, but it's so important, so we have to talk about it. It's like, well, we do have to talk about it, but I think we should also talk about these other films as well. Uh, that this is not, it isn't just black and white. It isn't just, you know, this was just the way that it was. No, this this really wasn't the way that it was, you know? And we can see that in the films of the period. Yeah, and well, and this is something that we have a problem with now, where people will suddenly discover 
that such and such movie was problematic back in the 80s or the 90s or two day, <laughs> two years ago, you know, and it's like, wait, you really think we weren't talking about that when it came out? Yes, of course we were. And it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, back in the 20s, people had issues with, with certain things. Like, yeah, when Birth of the Nation came out, that was a controversial movie when it came out. It's yeah. not something that everyone just accepted as fine. Like, sure, there were people who thought it was great, but... It was a controversial film that people definitely argued about and disagreed with and 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 had thoughts about back then even. This isn't something that we just recently discovered as problematic. No, exactly. And um uh and and you also see this in terms of not not just in terms of the uh the conflict between white filmmakers and, and African American filmmakers, but one of the uh first films to actually to actually have an a completely Chinese American cast was the Curse of Quang Guan, which was made by Marion E. Wong in uh, I believe 1916-1917. Now this is a film that uh, only a couple of reels of it survive, and this is actually one of the things I want to talk about in terms of the issues of silent cinema um, in just a minute. But uh, just to kind of round out this discussion of the issue of race and. Uh, the way that race was represented. This is a film made by a uh, a Chinese American director, starring entirely Chinese American cast about the Chinese American experience. Um, she, Marianne Wong, established a film company in California uh, in the early part of the twentieth century. You know, this this is really spectacular. And now the film itself, because we have so little of it. There's not a lot that we can that we can kind of extrapolate from it, but it's really fascinating that this actually existed. This was something that was um, that was actually produced during a very early period, and it's an incredibly important uh, discovery. It's an incredibly important film, um, and it's also something that needs again it needs to be acknowledged that the the film industry, particularly in the early period, was not just populated by a bunch of straight white men. It was populated by a whole lot of people, um, people of color, women, women of color, all kinds of filmmakers who were producing some really fascinating work that was, and good work. That's, that's the thing. This was like, a lot of these films are good. <laughs> these are not, yeah. you know, boring, pointless movies. These are films that are really interesting. They have problems, but they also have some, some fascinating points. And there's something that should be watched and should be experienced and studied. And also to kind of complicate the narrative that white men invented Hollywood or white men invented film. They didn't. Like cinema is, is built on the backs of a lot more than just white guys. And I, that's very white important. Men. White men didn't invent most of the things that they claim to have invented. So um, <laughs> they've actually invented very few things. But that's, that's neither they, here nor there. <laughs> they usually stole it from a woman or a person of color. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that is 100% true. Look it up. Um, <laughs> don't get mad at me. <laughs> but uh, but that's the thing. Like, And this comes back to what I was saying to you about YouTube and like, when you're in the early days of something and everyone's experimenting, there's no... Uh, there's no limit. There's no, like, there's no, you can do this and you can't do that because everyone's just trying to figure it out. And so in those very earliest days, a big part of the reason Hollywood was even founded in the first place was because of how expensive it was to do stuff back East. And so people started moving out here. Um, they could get land, they could 
uh, get all kinds of things way cheaper. Electricity was a little bit easier to come by um, for an affordable price. Uh, the taxes were much lower back then. Um, a little different now. But, uh, uh, but yeah, so people started moving out here just because it was cheaper to do these things. Back then, film was extremely expensive. And um, so they had to find ways that they could cut costs and things. And so uh, that was kind of where Hollywood was born. And um, there weren't there weren't limitations on who could open a studio and who could star in a movie because they didn't know yet to put limitations on it. They still didn't mm-hmm. think, I think you mentioned this at the beginning, like they still didn't know if this was going to go anywhere. They didn't know that there was going to be this big booming multi-trillion dollar industry that would eventually be born out of it. Once they figured out that that's where it was headed, then they pushed out all the women and the people of color. But, um, but that's the thing. Like anybody could do anything back then because it was just all experimentation and it was just kind of this free for all. And this is one of the things that, uh, when I was watching both the Francis, uh, Francis Marion and Alice Guy docs last night, I just kept thinking, it's insane to me that we're still trying to get just, just more than 4%. We just want to go more than 4% of mm-hmm. women directing studio films. But back in the early days, women were owning studios. They were opening them. They were producing half of the movies and directing half of the movies before they even had the right to vote. Yeah. And it's just insane to me that now people act like we're crazy and demanding just because we want, you know, two or three additional women directing big studio films. It's mm-hmm. insane. How did we go backwards? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it is because of partially because of the way that the industry developed the the fact that um, the fact that that men held the purse strings to a certain degree that men were the studio mm-hmm. heads and, and as Hollywood begins to develop as sort of a, a major cinematic force in the world. Um, men obviously came into a great deal of power. And then there were also very notable successes and people like D.W. Griffith was a very successful filmmaker. Um, one, one of the things I think that's important to just mention is that there's an estimate that something like 80% of silent films that were produced in this period are gone. Um, and by that, yeah. I mean that they are, they do not exist anymore. They were, uh, this was, this was a period where, Again, part of this was about the the question of how ephemeral film was, and film stock, uh, particularly in this time period, was very flammable. Very, very, it, it tended to break down over the years, and a lot of people just really didn't think that this was going to be anything. You were producing very quick features or shorts um, as as a source of entertainment, as a source of fast entertainment. That then, you know, you you didn't you figured you weren't going to show them again. And so a lot of film stock was stripped, like literally just erased so that it could be reused. Um, films were improperly stored. Uh, they, they broke down. You know, we, we hear all of these stories about uh, film storehouses burning down because the, the film stock was incredibly flammable um, or simply reels literally being stored in people's basements where they succumbed to mildew and broke down. So there is the majority when you really think about it the majority of the films that were produced during that period don't exist anymore and so we only know some of them we only know about because they were talked about in in publications or we have um we have some information about them from 
from uh, contemporary like PR uh, runs and things like that. But there are a whole bunch of films that we just don't know existed. Uh, and we will never know existed. And that's one of the, the tragedies of early cinema is that there was so little desire to preserve. There was so little, little attempt to preserve. And some of them simply couldn't have been preserved um, with the technology that existed at that point. So, you know, you think about the number of films and reels and, and you know, some of these films that we're talking about, there, there are only fragments that remain that are just gone. And we will never get to see them. And that's... It's sad, but it also kind of reminds us that this is the, the this is the beginning of an art form, and uh, and we always need to think about the fact that what we're seeing is a very small snippet of what people were actually making in that period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's so much stuff that we'll never get to know or see or or whatever, but that's it's just all the more reason why we need to preserve what we have. And even that is being lost. And so mm -hmm. it's like, sure, it's great. They've re been able to restore a whole lot of Alice Guy films, but there are estimates that there are hundreds more that have disappeared that she produced and directed. And it's just, it's sad that, that that's happened, but there's nothing we can do about it, but we can preserve these early films and stop letting them just disappear. And this is one of the things that's so frustrating about what, you know, the big studios are doing now with Warner and Disney and where they're just releasing the stuff that they think they can make money on. And mm -hmm. it's like, put, put what you have into the public domain. Let us have access to it. Preserve this history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I think that it's important that we're aware of this. It's important that um, I think anyone as film critics, but also just as viewers are aware that, that we have a particular view, a particular uh, pop cultural view, I guess, of early cinema, that it's boring or that nothing interesting was being done, that it's just kind of like, you know, it's just old people in old timey costumes and things like that. And of course that, that isn't true even with, when you talk about the films that we do still have. Um, but also the, uh, there's, there's this impression, and we've talked about this a lot uh, on this podcast, there's this impression that it was always just dominate, just patriarchal domination. It was always white male domination. And that does a disservice, I think, to the history of cinema, and it does a disservice to the efforts of the people from that period to begin with. It does a disservice to people like Oscar Michaud um, to not, to just, because these are, quote, old films, to just ignore them and to ignore their existence. And, and you see it a lot uh, with, with film critics. So, you know, we talk about people who are like, oh, you know, everybody loves things like Metropolis, um, which is a very, which is an early German expressionist film by Fritz Lang. Um, and we're going to talk about Metropolis. Isn't this fascinating about Metropolis? Just like, okay, well, yes, Metropolis is a very important film and it's a, it's a very good film. But you also have to talk about some of Lang's other films uh, and the other filmmakers who were making films around the same period. That it wasn't just this, you know, monolithic canonical production of these are the important movies and everything else should be ignored. Um, a lot of the things that are being ignored are the films that are made by marginalized people. 
and by people that were actually trying to tell their stories in, you know, 1915, long before, uh, <laughs> you know, long before Ava DuVernay was born. <laughs> um, and, and that this, this is a, a, a complicated narrative that it's, it's far more than just, you know, these very important movies made by very white men. And I, I, I don't even know what else to say. <laughs> watch old movies watch the oldest movies that you can what's the oldest movie you've seen Lauren I'm I'm actually trying to think Uh, it's gotta be pretty early probably 18 it's gotta be at least 1895 yeah Uh, I mean I've seen those very earliest ones so I think that horse racing that like running horse thing is the very first that they have I don't know if it's the very first one made but the first one that they have still preserved that's the one i remember watching in sixth grade i remember that one yeah i i mean i think think that's from like 1870 or something yeah that's that's the thing like we tend to today as we were saying at the beginning of all this uh we tend to date cinema from from the first um the first exhibition of the lumiere brothers films uh which was 1895 Mm -hmm. but there were (laughs) pre-cinema things being done prior to that and so there's this whole argument and then again you always have this this difficulty because a lot of these films um don't exist anymore there's only kind of reports of them uh and then others you're like and then others are difficult to date it's like well was this made in like 1888 was this made in 1870 it's it's definitely the latter part of the 19th century but how far towards the 20th century it was going is is sort of an open question um yeah so one of the things that i think that we should talk about moving moving ahead just a little bit we've talked a lot about early cinema Mm -hmm. one of the things i think we should talk about is you know so you get kind of the buildup of hollywood you get you also get the buildup of a lot of other film industries across the world uh there is a burgeoning japanese film industry there's a russian film industry uh you know, his most famous director was uh, Eisenstein, who did Battleship Potemkin, um, and kind of didn't create, but sort of popularized the concept of Soviet montage and the use of montage uh, images, which essentially, uh, if you watch any of Eisenstein's films, he, he likes cutting together images that might not necessarily have a... Um, a diegetic relationship with each other. So, you know, uh, one of his more famous shots is this shot of this uh, Russian general uh, who is sort of the villain of of the piece. And it cuts, and the camera literally cuts to an image of a peacock. Uh, I think it's a mechanical peacock, in fact. I would have to look it up again. It's like the image of a peacock and then back to this Russian general. And of course, the comparison that is being made here is a very explicit comparison between this general and a peacock but the peacock is not in the same scene with the general it is a uh, it's a montage image he's using as a point of comparison um and so eisenstein kind of is is a major innovator in that sort of filmmaking and it's almost some of his films almost have a uh uh nearly surreal aspect to them because of that because you're like well where the fuck did the peacock come from <laughs> um but it has an obvious it isn't surreal in the sense that it's not a dream logic it it has a very logical relationship like you understand what he is trying to do he's trying to draw this comparison 
Um, in Germany, of course, you got the developing German film industry and kind of the creation of uh, Weimar cinema, which is uh, prior to the, the rise of Nazism in, in Germany, obviously. But, but also one of the main features of this is the, the rise of German Expressionism, which has a huge influence eventually on world filmmaking, on German filmmaking and on Hollywood filmmaking when um, a number of the early sort of progenitors of uh, uh, German Expressionism leave Germany and go to France and then eventually to Hollywood. People like Fritz Lang, um, some of the other early filmmakers are people like uh, F.W. Murnau and uh, Robert Vine, who are, are producing some really, again, fantastic images. We've talked before about the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And, uh, you know, we mentioned Lang's Metropolis, um, Murnau's Nosferatu, who are, like the, again, these very, very early examples of horror cinema and, uh, and the use of chiaroscuro, so the contrast between light and dark, um, the use of canted angles and, uh, uh, and much more complicated cinematography. And not only are these great films, again, you know, if you're talking about influential, these are very influential films. Horror cinema as we know it does not exist without it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I know people are like, oh, old movies. No, you got to go back and watch Caligari. You have to go back and watch Nosferatu, you know. And funny thing is, you actually see images that you're going to recognize because they have been used throughout the years, including... In what we do in the shadows, as I was rewatching some episodes yesterday, <laughs> the whole we're going to rise out of the coffin, you know, straight up. That's straight out of Nosferatu. <laughs> you know, when I was watching Nosferatu, it really reminded me of what we do in the shadows. And <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but so then, meanwhile, in Hollywood, you obviously have the birth of Hollywood and kind of the creation uh, that w of what would eventually become the studio system and the rise of uh, various comedians, performers, etc. I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about Frances Marion, who is uh, being featured on the Criterion channel this week. She is. I was so happy. The timing was so perfect. I saw that and I was just like, oh my gosh, awesome. There's, I think, 13 films that she wrote that they've included. Um, but one of the things they have on there is this, it's about an hour long documentary that I think was actually done for TCM. I, it, it plays out like it was originally on TV. Um, and it's about her career and she, she started off, um, she was living in San Francisco in 1906, the earthquake and the great San Francisco fire happened. And so she ended up moving down to Hollywood and she was really pretty, so they wanted to get her into modeling. And she was just like, eh, all right, but that's not really what I want to do. And so she ended up kind of getting into writing. And one of the things that I learned is that she was the... So, okay, so she was the first woman to win an Academy Award for screenwriting. And she was the first person to win a second Academy Award. I didn't know that. Um... So she, yeah, and she got one other Oscar nomination after that, too. But she was, at one point, just like you were talking about Lois Weber being the highest paid director, Frances Marion was the highest paid writer. 
And um, part of that was because she became really good friends with Mary Pickford, um, Mm -hmm. who was the big, you know, everyone everyone knew Mary Pickford. And so the two of them teamed up and it got to where Pickford would tell studios, like, I'm not going to do your movie unless Francis writes it. And that was, they became an unstoppable pair. And I just, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this is why women have to champion each other. This is why we have to support each other because the men are out to get us a lot of times, even if they don't think they are, (laughs) they are. And, um, and when we band together and we help each other out, we all win. And I just thought that was such an inspiring thing to, to learn about their friendship and how, how that really worked. And, um, it was, yeah, I, I mean, she, she wrote things like the champ and Mm -hmm. which is such a, I love that movie. And her first Oscar was for a movie called the big house, which, uh, was the first film that really put you inside the prison system and Mm -hmm. experiencing being in prison and what that feels like just getting there, like being processed and then being, you know, going through that whole thing. And this was written by a woman. She hadn't, she wasn't a prisoner. She'd never been to prison, you know, but, but her story just, it really resonated with people and it was just such a great film. And she just had so many of those where it was just, um, she just had this way of tapping into the whole range of emotions and, um, and like one of the first films that she and, and Pickford worked on together, um, poor little rich girl, I think it was, mm, that the right. studio didn't want to put it out. They said, no, this is terrible. This is a disaster. This is an embarrassment. We don't want to do it. And, they kind of ended up having their hands forced because um, there was some, I can't, I should have written it down, but there was some kind of problem. And basically the theaters were like, you have to give us something. And they, that was the only thing they had that they could, <laughs> could release. And so Mary Pickford and Francis Marion dress up in kind of in disguises and go to the theater because they wanted to hear what the audience thought after being told by the studio that it was trash and the audience loved it. They ate it up. They were laughing at all the right places. They just had a ball. And that was really what launched the two of them together. And uh, it was like, yeah, in your face, studio executives, you don't always know what people <laughs> want. Well, I mean, so. that was, that's a major, I mean, that's a major film for Pickford. Like, that's, yeah. that's one of her big ones, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. And, that's and it almost never saw the light of day. That's the thing. That's something we should remark on. You know, stardom in in this period. Mary Pickford was uh, was had a wielded a lot of power. I mean, she helped to form mm-hmm. United Artists with Douglas Fairbanks and uh, Charlie Chaplin. Um, yeah. she, so she wielded a lot of power. So did Douglas Fairbanks. So did Charlie Chaplin. Um, so did people like uh, Raymond Navarro and famously Rudolph Valentino. Uh, I actually recently watched Anna Christie, which is, so this is getting into the the talking period, but which is the first time that Greta Garbo spoke on screen uh, and was scripted. It's based on a play by Eugene O'Neill, but it was scripted by Francis Marion. And um, it's, it's a very interesting film. It's, uh, it's a little stagey. It's one of those early talkies that it's quite obvious that they're not quite certain what to do with the camera and they're not quite certain how to place the (laughs) microphone. 
in order to pick up everything. Like my, my roommate and I were actually laughing about um, uh, singing in the rain and the whole like uh, with Gene Hagen at one point they put the camera, they put the um, microphone in a bush in order to, to try to pick up the voices. And Gene Hagen is like, well, I can't make love to a bush. <laughs> I love that part. And I love that movie. It's so good. Gene, you know what? I just just as a sidebar, Gene Hagen is an incredibly underrated actress. She is yes, so yes. funny in that, and and it's like some of the biggest laughs in the movie. I know she's like the titular; she's sort of the villain, I guess. But it's some of the biggest laughs in that movie actually come from her. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So she's great. Yeah, she she deserves respect. But but so you've got these huge stars, these stars that that had a lot a lot of power yeah well that's one of the things that i found was interesting was because mary pickford yeah she's the big you know big movie star everybody loves her she's beautiful she's funny the way that she like francis marion meets her she walks into an editing bay one day and there's mary pickford cutting her own film like she was editing, <laughs> she was doing cutting the negatives, and that was how they met. And it's just like, see, even the stars, like nothing was, you know, for some of them, nothing was beneath them. They did, they helped out with their own productions in the earliest days because they found it interesting. They wanted to know how to do it. They, you know, sometimes it was just there was no one else around available. So I just thought that was really interesting. There was like for Mary Pickford, it wasn't beneath her to be cutting negatives, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just fascinating. And, um, something else too, you mentioned that Mary Pickford, uh, founded United Artists. Well, Francis Marion helped start the WGA and, Part of the reason, well, the reason that that happened was because in the 30s, and yeah, this is getting a little bit past where we wanted to start, but, um, or where we wanted to leave off for today, but um, in the 30s, during the Depression, they were cutting salaries, they were not paying people because, you know, nobody had any money, and at that time, Frances Marion was making $3,000 a week or something like that, maybe it was a month. Um, but she was making a ton of money. And so for her to get her salary cut in half was no big deal because there were a lot of people that were barely making 50 bucks a week. Um, but she was just like, no, this is wrong. And so she helped start the WGA and was the first vice president because she wanted to support other artists. She wanted to support her fellow writers. And she knew that she was very privileged and that she had this great position and she didn't use that just to further herself. She used that to help other people. Because women are inherently superior. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we take care of one another. <laughs> speaking, speaking of which, so we've talked a lot about uh, female directors, but we did have a question actually about female directors. Um, this we is did. from B. Peterson at Blue Gray Closet. I recently heard on Ed Critical, uh, Critic Acclaim's Letters podcast, that during the silent era, female directors were much more common. Are there any big name female Hollywood directors that have filmographies worth diving into? I mean, yes, obviously. We, and we've talked about some of them uh, recently. Definitely Lois Weber. Um, yeah. Uh, who is a, a, definitely a Hollywood director and that she worked for Universal, etc. Um, Alice Guy Blachet uh, as, as some of the some of the earlier female directors. And 
nicely, a lot of their films are available. They are available on YouTube. They're also available. Kino has done a great job in restoring some of these films and in making fragments available, in making, um, uh, you know, various various feature-length films available. Um, so it's it's definitely worth it. I think one of the things you do have to be aware of before going into some of these is that there are definitely dated things that are in a lot of these films. Um, Lois Weber mm-hmm. made a very odd film, uh, I believe called Where Are My Children, which is a, which deals directly <laughs> with the issue of abortion and contraception and is a very interesting film in terms of that, but also definitely has some problematic elements to it, including a kind of a support of eugenics, which is a little troubling, uh, but is very much in keeping with uh, the time period that she was working in. But her films are, are fascinating and I think worth watching, not just because they're good films, they're well-made films, but also because they give you more of an insight into some topics of the period that a lot of male directors didn't want to deal with, uh, but that a female mm-hmm. director actually did. Um, so, did. Uh, the other one is Mabel Normand, who was um, a, a partner with uh, Charlie Chaplin and with Freddie Arbuckle and made some of her own films. Uh, who's, she's a fantastic female comedian. Did you have other people that you wanted to talk about, Karen? Um, uh, other than the ones that we've already mentioned, I would also just add Lada Reiniger. Yes. Um, with just some amazing early animation. Uh, the Adventures of Pride and Sockmet is just phenomenal. Um she did all kinds of fairy tales. She did Sleeping Beauty. Um, what else did she do? I think I think she did a Hansel and Gretel. Um, yeah, yeah, just some really fascinating um, innovations in animation. So definitely, she's one that I would add. Yes, definitely. Uh, but also just you know look around like like I say I think that that's something like you know and I'm we're not sponsored by Kino uh, <laughs> but they have actually they've they've made available in very high quality prints a lot of films that were made by women that just haven't been available you can watch the remaining fragments of uh, of the Curse of Quang Gon and um, Marion E. Wong's film and uh, documentary films by Isra Neil Hurston. Um, and, and it's important to actually, you know, take a step and, and watch some of these films because they're, there's, there's some really interesting stuff that was being done by female directors that has kind of gotten pushed to the side. And it's, it's really wonderful that we do have these things available now. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the other, the other question that we had that I didn't really mention in the early part of this discussion, um, from David Blake, uh, Fagiani, um, not really a question, but please mention electrocuting an elephant. Really stuck with me upon reading and seeing at uni. Electrocuting an Elephant is the Thomas Edison film uh, in which an elephant gets electrocuted on screen. And of course it was Thomas Edison. Of course it was Thomas Edison. And if if you haven't seen it, it is available. You can watch this actually happen. It is horrifying. And Bob's Burgers did a fantastic episode covering this incident (laughs) called Topsy. Uh, And so I also recommend the Bob's Burgers episode, which basically (laughs) says all of the things that we should really feel about Thomas Edison. He was very influential and, you know, an important figure in history. He was also a terrible human being. Uh, (laughs) So there, we mentioned electrocuting an elephant. Uh, an example of maybe what we should not be doing in filmmaking. 
Um, so yes. I, and why women should direct all the films. Yeah, because we did not film <laughs> electrocuting an elephant. Like, we're just like, ah, I'm, we're going to watch an animal die now. <laughs> yeah. Good times. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, thank you, David. Thank you, David, for that. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, and Nanina did. Uh, Nanina from Aunt Nanina Geller did ask about um, what the hell is going on in that GIF, the GIF that I posted <laughs> of the pig dancing, that and that is the dancing pig, and that is available on YouTube. Le cochon dancer, <laughs> <laughs> and it will haunt you for the rest of your days. I have to say, early films are fucking weird. There, there's just some weird shit that goes down in those films, and then you watch it, and you're like, "What is even happening?" There's a version of Goldilocks <laughs> that I saw in grad school that is just haunting and terrifying, and you're just like, "Oh, this is like a version of Goldilocks," and then it gets fucked up really fast. And I'm not going to spoil it, but everyone go and watch it. I think it's called, um, I think it's actually called the Teddy Bears. It's a, yes, yes, yes. It's I think it's an Edwin S. Porter film, but it is bizarre. And like seriously, just like oh, it's just a Goldilocks movie. This is kind of weird. And they're like, oh my god, oh my god, why? If you think, if you think people in 1902 were Puritans, um, you don't know what you're talking about. This shit gets weird. They man, were messed like. up. <laughs> Um, so I think a good way to close this out would be to talk about, you know, what do we consider some of the essentials of silent filmmaking, not just the big ones like Metropolis or The General, um, although those are very important films. If you have not seen them, please, you know, see them. They, they are worth it and they're very good movies. Um, but what are some others that maybe maybe are lesser known that we consider to be essential silent cinema? Uh, so I'll I'll go first. Um, I I do think I do think the stuff like Metropolis in general are really necessary. You know, go and watch some of the early Buster Keaton shorts. Um, some yeah. so stuff like Sherlock Junior, which are which is one of his feature films. I love Sherlock Junior. I'm so glad you mentioned that one. That's one of my and favorites. Sherlock Sherlock Junior is a great example of what of what early cinema silent cinema can accomplish because the photography in that is just great it's really cool and it's an interaction between the character and film really um but even just some of his early early shorts a lot of which are available on um again on youtube or on uh internet archive uh a lot of these films that we're talking about by the way are in the public domain so you can see them pretty much anywhere um, but so, yeah, so some of his early shorts, the shorts that he did with Fatty Arbuckle, uh, are very funny. They're very different that, again, have to take with a grain of salt in terms of racial sensitivity sometimes. Um, <laughs> there are moments where you're like, oh, please don't do that. Uh, but, you know, we gotta, we gotta take the bad with the good side sometimes. Um, also, of course, Charlie Chaplin's early films, uh, Chaplin, again, one of those big, big filmmakers, uh, one of the original auteurs, really. Um, mm -hmm. And I would also say things like the original Ben-Hur, which starred uh, Raymond Navarro, and again, is a very interesting film. Um, and I actually think it's a better film than the the later one from the 50s that starred Charlton Heston. I, like, the, the chariot race in the original Ben-Hur, I think, is more terrifying uh, than the chariot race in the 1950s one, partially because, like, people are actually dying, um, famously, there in, there's a famous uh, ship burning sequence in the original Ben Hur, 
in which like numerous extras died like they drowned and and they literally lit ships on fire like they're like oh we're going to light we're gonna start a fire (laughs) and see if you can get out i mean that was kind of what was going on um that's the other thing about a lot of these films is that a lot of them they these are actual people doing these actual stunts because because there is no protection there are no union rules <laughs> there is no like ah t- you know let's protect the extras no the extras might die and it's this i'm not saying that this is a good thing uh it is an interesting <laughs> thing and it, it it definitely makes the films feel very immediate and it it, it certainly throws the the sort of acrobatics of people like uh, Keaton and Chaplin into relief where you're like, holy shit, they actually did that. And they didn't die. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That, oh, yeah. Um, Sorry. I was a little bit distracted by something happening outside my window. But, um, (laughs) yeah, it's really amazing to see the things that happened in early film and it's i mean it's a good thing that we're protecting people now but uh yes it is <laughs> but they got some really great footage out of it <laughs> just kidding um but no some uh, some other ones i think for myself um i mean you mentioned buster keaton and charlie chaplin i love them i really love the earliest uh, mickey mouse cartoons like steamboat willie yeah. i love that um and some of those are great. I really like Wings, which was the first film to ever win Best Picture. Um, and it's this big war movie. And it's um, it's it's kind of that where you see film in transition in the like 1925 to 1928, where you're really starting to see how big they could go and what they could accomplish. And um, I think Wings is a great example of that. And there's some other ones, like you mentioned, Metropolis and, and um, just where you really start to see the direction and, and how the industry is starting to take shape. And um, before the men kicked out the women and bastardized it, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, I, I mean, I say that, sort of kidding i mean there's some really great men that made movies we've talked about a few today but um but yeah i mean some of those early films are just really really incredible and even if you don't like them you should still watch them and experience them and understand this i mean we've talked about this a million times on this podcast but it's like if you're a big fan of steven spielberg that's great Go and watch the films that inspired Steven Spielberg. You'll understand his films now and appreciate them on a whole other level when you understand what he grew up with and what made him want to get into filmmaking and what the references are that he's using in his films. If you like uh, Alfred Hitchcock, he was inspired by people. He didn't just drop out of the sky and start making films. I mean, he even referenced people like Alice Guy as inspirational and and uh influential on his work so yeah watch these films by these earliest directors to really get the full experience of the films that you like yeah exactly exactly i mean hitchcock actually worked for murnau uh he he worked he was a title card writer for uh for murnau and he did he did a whole bunch of different things but um so 
you know, if you want to see some of the influences in Hitchcock's work and and where he came from, and also, you know, I have to say these films are entertaining. These are not bad films. They are. A lot of these, yes, there are some boring ones, just like there are some boring ones right now. Yes, sometimes you have to kind of recalibrate your your brain in order to kind of get what they're doing. There is a style of acting, there is a style of filmmaking that is being used that is, you know, might be a little odd to initially, but these are great films, and some of them are, are just really fascinating and do fascinating and no you can't right and no you can't play with your phone while you're watching a silent movie (laughs) which i know is frustrating for people you have to actually watch what's happening on the screen that's true yeah but do it it's worth it (laughs) that's true i I also wanted to suggest um a, a really great film this is swedish fantasy film the phantom carriage uh, which is a little bit later from 1921 uh, and is directed by, uh, and I can never pronounce his name correctly, Victor Sostrom, who uh, also did The Wind in 1928, um, uh, which is uh, famous starring Lillian Gish, uh, it, which is also available, by the way, on Criterion Channel. Um, but The the Phantom Carriage is, is a great horror slash fantasy movie. Uh, <clears throat> And and again, you you know you see all of these influences and where where contemporary filmmaking comes from, you know. If, and if that's the only reason why you're watching these films, great. But as I say, these are actually entertaining films, so spend a little bit of time with them. Yeah, I have not seen the Phantom Carriage, but I found that it was on Criterion last night when I was scrolling through stuff. So I added it to my list. I was like, oh, I gotta watch this because I've been wanting to see that one for a while. It's it's a really really interesting movie. There's. So I think that basically what we want to come away with all this is saying there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that we haven't talked about. I mean, I haven't mentioned Lon Chaney or uh, Lon Chaney Sr. We haven't really talked about Greta Garbo. We haven't talked about a lot of the big stars or even a lot of the big directors. But, you know, early cinema and silent cinema has a lot to offer. And it has a lot to offer beyond what are what we consider the classics uh, and, and particularly because the classics tend to be the films that are made by white men. And there's a lot of stuff that's, that was made that is not that was not made by white men and that have a very different perspective and a very important perspective. And it's, it's, these can be fascinating films, funny films, exciting films, offensive films, uh, films that you find boring, films that you find entertaining, but they are very important films and they're worth experiencing for anyone who likes movies, period. Whether you're a critic, whether you're just a casual film goer, there's a lot that's available. And also, you you should be in quarantine, so what else are you going to do? Yeah. Well, and, and I think you bring up an excellent point. I'm so tired of people talking about how they love movies, but they refuse to watch certain ones. Like, yeah. there are certain genres I don't enjoy, but guess what? If someone says, hey, you should watch this movie, I'm going to try it out. Like, I don't necessarily love... As a, as a genre, I don't love martial arts films, but there are certain ones that I'm like, wow, that's a really great movie. And I'll try anything because I love film and I just, I can't stand when people, I think a lot of people, when they say they love film, they mean that they love modern films and they've, they just don't give it a try. It's like, just try new things. If you really like this, if you care about this and you're really passionate about this medium, and you really want, and especially if you want to write about it, you need to understand, like I said, you need to understand the things that influence the people that you love and the movies that you love. Mm-hmm. 
I think that this is going to be a refrain for the next couple of weeks. Just watch yeah, these movies! Well, <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's the thing. I think that um, for anybody listening, this is something that we're going to be doing over the next who knows how long. We're just going to kind of go through eras. We're going to talk about different um, different directors and stars and stuff. So if there are certain topics you'd like us to cover, let us know because we'd love to to do a deeper dive into certain things that are interesting to you. And maybe it'll be stuff that's new for both of us, or at least definitely for me. <laughs> Lauren's watched a lot more movies than I have, but, um, but yeah, if there's certain things you want us to cover, let us know and we'll see what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm certain that we're going to come back to some of these, these questions and problems uh, later and stars and directors, as you say, later on. Um, so mm-hmm. just a reminder, this is a good segue to the end of our program. Uh, just a reminder that many of the films that we are talking about right now are indeed available on the Criterion channel, and we are running a contest to win three months of the Criterion channel. We are? We are, that's yes, cool. that's right. And I have no idea why you wouldn't want to do this, because you like we're literally going to pay for you to have three months of the Criterion channel. Um, there is no obligation on your part. So so in order to enter, the only thing you have to do is enter. Uh, so in order to enter, please send us an email, comment, or DM with your most surprising blind spot. Uh, subject line, if you're sending a, an email, is Criterion, and you can send that to citizendamepod at gmail.com. And just tell us what your most surprising cinematic blind spot is. So if you've never seen The Godfather... Most surprising is The Godfather. It can be something that you feel is surprising, but that we'll be like, man, I've never seen that movie. I don't know what you're talking about. That's not surprising at all. Um, it, it can honestly be anything. We all have them. This is not about shaming or anything like that. Uh, I think all of us have... Yeah, we are not judging you. <laughs> yeah, all of us have films that we have not seen and that we feel like we should have. Uh, so yeah, so e- so email us d uh, comment or DM with your most surprising blind spot, and you will be entered to win three months of the Criterion Channel on us, and we will announce the winner uh, at some point over the next couple of weeks. So keep that in mind. Uh, of course, as always, uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. We are also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. You can email us at citizendamepod at gmail.com. Our website is citizendamepod.com, where we have reviews. There will, there will actually be some reviews of some new Alice Guy Blachet discs coming up, so I'm excited about that. Yay! Uh, if you want to kick us some money, we always appreciate it, and we are trying to do more things for our patrons, and we're just really appreciative of the people who are patronizing us at this period because of course we know how difficult things are right now and weird things are um our patron our patreon is patreon.com slash citizen dame and we want to thank our our current patrons heather adriana crooked table podcast michael james katie cariata mason matthew monty nanina nicole robert sharon steve tau and will uh, thank you guys so much and for continuing to kind of support us and supporting the podcast and also it makes us feel loved. Uh, if you want to buy some stuff, you we do have a Zazzle store. That's Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame. And you can also kick us some, some dollars at our Ko-Fi account. That's co-fi.com slash Citizen Dame. Uh, Karen, what are you up to this week? Uh, this week I'm going to watch some more movies and do some more work 
I don't know. When am I watching this week? Oh, Snowpiercer is starting. I'm so excited. It's oh, the, sure. finally, the TNT show based on the Bong Joon-ho film, which is based on a graphic novel, and it stars David Diggs, and I'm already in love with it. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, yes yeah. i'm gonna i think actually after this entire conversation i'm like i'm gonna watch some silent movies so i'm gonna go and find some silent <laughs> some silent movies that i have not seen and and watch them and see if i can find something new that i love so i think that that is going to close this out we're gonna come back next week and we'll be talking more about film history and theory and directors and uh important people that you may have heard of or you may not have and we'll be shaming you into watching a whole bunch of new movies uh so i am always contactable at uh lh business on twitter and instagram karen where are you i am at karen m peterson and that will close us out we will talk to you guys later bye what Lena. We're missing every other word. You've got to talk into the mic. Well, I can't make love to a bush. All right, all right. We'll have to think something.